my name is Reagan, and I'll be leading you guys in the scripture reading today. And it's actually going to be in two separate places, so get ready to flip. So, um, our first reading is going to be in Luke 6, 39 through 40. And then the second is going to be in Philippians uh, 3, 1 through 15. And then in the blue Bibles as well, under your seats, it's on page 503 and also on page 571. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And then Philippians 3, 1 through 15. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also to you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. First things first, I want to give a shout out to uh, Soma Overflow, which most of you guys have no idea what that means and what's happening, but right now, probably cheering up in the uh, third floor on our office side, there is a group of people that are creating this little space right here, this little pocket that's keeping it from being oppressive uh, in this room. Uh, They are worshiping uh, via video so that we can free up some space in this season uh, that's very busy here, and so thank you guys for um, willingly doing that, and just an invitation, if you're like an introvert, and this uh, environment right here is overwhelming. Uh, video overflow is great. It's like 30 people, 
um, which frees up about 15 to 20% of our service in here. Um, <clears throat> or if you want to worship in a, just a more intimate environment, or if you just like watching a screen, uh, this is new for us. We hate that. We're kind of like a low-tech church. We're like the lowest-tech tech church uh, in Indianapolis. People call us the tech church because we have so many people that, that work in tech, and yet we're the most low-tech uh, church probably possible. And so uh, we are trying this as an experiment and thank you guys to those who are uh, stepping up and helping uh, rotate through over the next couple weeks. Hey, thanks uh, also for the college students. Man, uh, it, what a confidence and passion. I love it. If you're a college student, just lift up your hand. We normally do this, but look at this. Amazing. How many college students? Thank God for college students who love Jesus and who are uh, in a place where most college students are not uh, right now. Most of your peers are... Um, probably trying to get ahead of you right now, uh, doing all kinds of other things, achieving or sleeping in or whatever. But we're glad that you're here. We really value the presence of college students. That's something that's become more prominent over the last uh, couple of years, and we're thankful uh, for all of you. And, uh, and God's, God's heart for you is so big, and we are so thankful to be able to welcome you uh, as a gift. And so we're going to be in, uh, as we read, primarily Philippians 3, um, and we are talking about, we're in a vision series, talking about, when we talk about vision, we're talking about the conviction of what should be, um, fueled by an imagination of what could be. And every fall, we take time to step back and, and look again at the vision that God has for us. Um, and, and a couple weeks ago, we kind of laid this out, and we talked about a shift uh, in our story, kind of a pivot or uh, an iterative uh, time for us. We're stepping into and refining what God's done in the past and wanting to, to live into a different kind of future, not really changing our vision as much as seeing our vision grow up and continue to mature and be defined. And so um, the big shift for us is in really giving more time and attention this season to uh, what we've called spiritual formation, right? Uh, what the Bible or Jesus referred to as discipleship, right? Jesus says there, as he tells the parable in Luke uh, chapter 6, uh, a student becomes like his teacher when he's fully trained, right? The process of becoming uh, like our teacher, the rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And, and then in Philippians, we get this, uh, this vision laid out for uh, becoming like Jesus. And we said that uh, we kind of summarize spiritual formation in a simple statement, right, that we want to work through this fall. Uh, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. That is the essence of, of spiritual formation. And we said that spiritual formation, if we had this slide up here, Michael, the, the two slides up, we, spiritual formation means that we are, there we go, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. We're learning to organize our lives as followers of Jesus around the way of Jesus, which means three primary goals for every uh, apprentice of Jesus. We are learning to be with Jesus, which Pastor Josh talked about last week. Um, we're learning to become like Jesus, which we're going to talk about this week, and then we're doing what Jesus did, right? That is the process of spiritual formation. And so um, let, me, let me just kind of open our time here, becoming like Jesus, <clears throat> with a quote from Dallas Willard, who's kind of one of my favorite authors on the subject of discipleship and spiritual formation. Here's what he says. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by such character traits as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. And that is what Paul lays out for us in Philippians chapter 3. 
He says, I want to I know Jesus. I want to experience the power of his resurrection in my life right here and right now. He says, I want to share in his sufferings becoming like him. I want to learn what it's like not just to, to be with him relationally should lead to becoming like him in our, in our character. It's this deep work of inside-out transformation. Right? I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. It, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. It's literally, the word there is a metamorphosis, a metamorphosis, right? A metamorphosis, a transformation of the inner person that results in us becoming new, thoroughly, right? Being rebuilt from the bottom up and the inside out, you could say. That's what it means to experience. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves as we encounter a text like this is, is this even possible? I think some of us have become so cynical, so complacent when it comes to transformation. We wonder, is it really possible? Like, is this really possible for me to become this kind of person, to really become like Jesus? I mean, if we're honest, that sounds like a great aspiration, but it's a terrifying reality to try to live up to. I mean, I literally talk to people in our community who are like, I, I don't um, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to get baptized. I don't want to become part of the church because I'm afraid that I'm going to be a hypocrite, right? Because I know that I don't have what it takes to really be like Jesus. I mean, there was, when I was growing up, and again, this is like the Christian subculture. I was going to a Christian school for a season in my life, and, and people would wear these uh, WWJD bracelets. I don't know if you guys, you could probably find these on eBay or something now. Um, but it was, what would Jesus do? And there was this idea of like, if I can just figure out what Jesus would do, and then do it, then everything's going to be okay. And I always thought it was kind of strange because I'm like, I didn't become a Christian until I was later, later in my teenage years. And even when I became a Christian, I'm like, I try to do what Jesus does and I just mess it up. Like, I can't die on the cross for anybody's sins. I can't raise from the dead, right? Like, I can't multiply wonder bread like Hebrew Happy Meals, right? Like, I, I can't do the things that Jesus did. And, and so I'm, I'm looking at my life and then looking at Jesus' life and I'm like, this is, this is so uh, frustrating. And I, I, for me, um, I don't know if you feel like this sometimes, you just feel like you're, you get stuck. You get stuck and you, you go through these seasons of maybe plateauing in your, in your apprenticeship to Jesus. I hit one of these plateaus a couple of years ago. Um, I was in a season of my life where I was battling um, anxiety. And I was just kind of looking at my life and looking at my future. And I was asking myself this question, which is really the question that I think Paul invites us to ask this morning is who am I becoming? Who am I becoming like? Who or what am I becoming like? The reality is all of us are becoming like something or someone. Every day you could say you're being formed, right? You're being formed by stories about the world. You're being formed and shaped by messages that seep down into your uh, inner world. You are becoming like something. You are becoming like someone. And I, I looked in the future, and I, I didn't like who I was becoming. And I, and I felt uh, frustrated. I felt angry. I felt lonely. I felt um, confused. And so it led me down this path of really reexamining some of my assumptions about discipleship with Jesus. I became a Christian, like I said, when I was a teenager, but I really came alive in my faith in my early 20s. And I threw myself, basically the advice I was given was, read your Bible and pray and memorize lots of scripture, 
um, and it'll go well for you. And so I threw myself into kind of a season of what I call like being a productive Christian, doing things for God, trying to just read my Bible and memorize large portions of the Bible. And again, not bad things, but I realized as I got into my late 20s and my early 30s, um, those things seemed to not be getting me where I wanted to go. And matter of fact, sometimes they would reinforce the very patterns that I felt trapped in. And they didn't feel like I had a way out. And so what I want to present to you just at a high level through Paul's story is something that's really impacted my own life. And it's this idea that we are becoming like something. Most of us are doing it unconsciously and unintentionally. But we are becoming like someone. If you've seen that progressive insurance commercial uh, about the guy who's like becoming like his mother and he starts putting on like sweaters and he starts serving hors d'oeuvres like his mom and he's talking, using the same language. Like you are becoming something or someone. The question is, who are you becoming and, or what are you becoming? Paul says here, I want to become like Jesus, which sounds so simple, and yet it's just not. And it's encouraging. Paul says, I haven't already obtained this. Like the Apostle Paul writing later in his life from prison here. I mean, this is a guy who had literally given his life for the advancement of the gospel. And he says, I haven't, verse 12, obtained this. I'm not already perfect. I've not arrived it's a journey, right? Like Paul says, even I'm still learning. But here's what he says. But one thing I do. I love how he just makes it so simple and he focuses. One thing that I do, which again with Paul, one thing usually means two, right? One thing that I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So how do we become like Jesus? Paul says two things, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead. Now, I want to put something in front of what Paul says, not to improve upon what Paul says, but to clarify, I think, a misunderstanding of what Paul says. So I'm going to add another uh, little practice in here in front. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Now, this is probably one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Because usually what people do with this verse is they say, um, okay, Paul says, forget what lies behind. So I'm going to just, you know, I'm I'm new in Christ. I'm a new creation. I'm going to try to repress or put out of my mind everything that's happened to me in the past. I'm just going to ignore it, push it down, stuff it down. Don't worry about Uh, how I got to where I am now, I'm going to forget. I'm going to literally, it's like being in the Matrix. Remember the movie The Matrix? And it's like like you're plugged in, like your brain's plugged into some computer program system, right? And so I'm going to have somebody download uh, into my brain and just uh, a program that will delete out all my memory from the past. And then it's going to upload all the righteousness of Christ, going to upload what it looks like to live in the reality of Christ. Psychologists would call this Repression, sublimation, denial, we could get very psychological with it. For some of us, that looks like denying the reality of our past. Um, For some of us, that's deifying the reality of our past. But that's not what Paul's saying. The irony of all of that is that Paul starts here by talking about his past. Obviously, he hadn't deleted his past. So forgetting must not mean what we think forgetting means. It must not mean I don't, 
I don't look to the past to learn anything or listen to my past or, or my story and, and ask questions about how that shaped who I am. It must mean something different. There's this particular kind of forgetting that Paul's talking about here that I think really is the difference that I've experienced in my own life in the last couple of years in terms of how I become like Jesus. So let me add in, before we talk about forgetting our past, reflecting on our past. Reflecting on our past, because that's what Paul's doing in verses 3 to 6. He's sharing his testimony, right? He's sharing his testimony, and he's talking about the power of the past to influence the present. The power in the past to influence his present-day relationship with Jesus and his relationship with these followers of Jesus. He says, I, I want you to experience joy. That's, the, that's what the whole book of Philippians is about. It's been called the epistle of joy. This is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible, because it's just Paul's autobiographical unpacking of his journey and his relationship with Jesus as an old man sitting in prison writing to some young bucks about what it looks like to grow up into and to progress in knowing and becoming like Jesus. And the first thing that Paul says is you have to pay attention to your past. I mean, I kept asking myself this question this week. Why in the world does Paul write these words at this point in the letter? Why does he stop in the midst of talking about how amazing Jesus is, right? I want to I know him. I want to be found in him. I want to be transformed. Yeah, let's go, Paul. Let's, let's move to the future. And yet Paul says, but one thing I have to do, forget what lies behind. Before I strain to the future, I have to forget what lies behind. Paul understood, I think, the power of the past to influence our present. And here's, here's the way I've heard it put before. Um, our past must be transformed or it'll be transmitted. Our past must be transformed or it will be transmitted. We must reflect on the past and learn from the past if we're going to move into the future that God has for us. This isn't just Freudian you know, psychology here. This is Paul unpacking the reality of his past for us. This is, in other places, what Paul would call putting off the old self putting off the old self, which doesn't, again, I mean deleting the old self, right? Denying the old self. It's putting it off, putting it to death, not allowing it to strangulate us, literally. It's kind of the language, the idea of putting to death, but seeking to put it to death. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, that is not the way that you learn Christ, talking about uh, similarly, uh, similar concepts of becoming like Jesus. It's not the way you learn Christ. How did you learn Christ? He says, put off your old self, which belongs to the, your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So Paul says, if you're going to put on Jesus, you've got to make room for Jesus. You've got to learn to put to death or put off, create some space, putting off your old self, which belongs to a whole former pattern and schema of life, an old template, an old pattern, an old blueprint, an old operating system, essentially what Paul's saying. It's been corrupted. It's fading away. It's like opening up the refrigerator and smelling something that's past the expiration date. That's the idea of corruption, right? It's disgusting, right? So let me just put it this way. Um, when it comes to transformation, when it comes to becoming like Jesus, you can't put off what you've put out. What you put out of your mind, what you put out of your center of consciousness, however you want to say it, what you put out of your periphery, your frame, you can't put it off if you keep denying it and its implications for your present and your future. And that's what Paul unpacks for us here in this little testimony. He says, 
he talks about all the reasons that he has for confidence in the flesh. Now, confidence in the flesh for Paul, that word confidence means what he boasts in. It's, It's what he boasts in. It's what he glories in, in other words, right? And Paul's saying, there's all these things in my past that conspired together to give me a kind of confidence in the flesh. And in the flesh for Paul means apart from God, essentially, right? My, 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 my identity as a person, right? My, where I find he would go on to say my righteousness, a righteousness of my own, as opposed to a righteousness that comes not from the law, but from Jesus Christ. Our confidence is what we're glorying in. And all of us have a particular way that we boast in our past. A particular way that our view of the world has been shaped by our past. For Paul, look at, look at his resume. What he's presenting here is the resume. resume. The word righteousness um, means basically like how you make it in the world, right? Like how it's a right standing with, with other people. The confidence that you have or don't have as you move out into a broken world. Paul says, I had all kinds of reasons to be confident. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a good Jew, he says. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, meaning I kept all the laws. I was observant. I was a scholar. I excelled in my studies and my achievements. You, I mean, the Pharisees were like the special delta forces of religious leaders, right? Like these are the PhDs, the theologians, the really smart ones. Paul says, I nailed it. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I was so zealous. I was killing Christians in the name of God. As to righteousness under the law, under the Torah, I was blameless, not saying he was sinless, he's just saying in terms of all the externals, circumcision and the things that counted for Jews, I was faultless, I was spotless, I did it all in terms of the externals. So Paul talks about all of these things that gave him confidence, that gave him a sense of being okay in the world. This is how formation works before we come to know Jesus. Let me give you just a, a slide and kind of walk you through what this looks like. In the middle there, we have what we might call me, right? My sense of self, my, my righteousness, my identity, the core of who I am as a person, and the way that I see the world, and, and the confidence or maybe the lack thereof that we move out of from our early experiences in life. And it's an interaction. It's a dynamic process, right? So this is not linear. It's a dynamic process, but it's an interaction between a couple of different things at least, okay? The social systems that we're raised in, and Paul talks about those, the relational systems, right? I was a Hebrew. I was a Jew. I was in this religious system of Judaism, right? I I was a Pharisee. All of us are influenced and shaped by early social structures, relationships with our families of origin, right? Particularly with our parents, particularly with our fathers and our mothers and our siblings and those closest to us. And in many ways, our early sense of self, I mean, you can look at this like neurobiologically. We have mirror neurons that as early as the first couple of weeks of life learn to mirror back to our parents the things that they are uh, showing us. Right? I mean, it's amazing the way that the neural networks of the brain are formed at a very early age. So um, we talk about that in psychology in terms of attachment and autonomy. If I, if I have a strong early relational fabric sewn between me and my parents and my family of origin, I tend to be more confident. If not, I tend to be less confident and, and more autonomous or detached. 
all Paul's talking about. I grew up in this system that kind of conditioned me to see the world through a certain lens, a certain kind of mental and spiritual and emotional architecture. This includes um, good things for all of us and also wounds, right? Hurts that we experience. Things that like right now you can go back and remember life-defining moments and interactions with people who are supposed to love you who betrayed you, who didn't take care of you, who hurt you, who abused you, who traumatized you, who disappointed you and let you down. That's all influencing who we are and how we see the world. It especially influences our ability to trust. That interacts with our bodies, right? Our, our biology, the way that we're wired, all of our, our memories and our uh, brain structures and just what it means to live in bodies, right? Like this embodied experience, this thing that is me, right? My, my height, my IQ, my emotional world, right? All of these things comprise the body. And so the interaction of those influences how we experience the world. And then finally, the habits that we form out of that. So as much as we like to think that we are self-created beings, the reality is we are in many ways the sum total of the relationships that we have growing up, our bodies, our biology, the chemical processes that are at work in our body, and then the habits that flow out of that that are formed oftentimes not intentionally but reactively that make us a certain kind of person. And so we have all kinds of habits. There's books about this, right? You think about the book, The Power of Habit. The routines in our life shape who we are or who we are not, who we are becoming or who we're not becoming. The world, Paul says, Romans 12, he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. The world is like a rabbi, and it is seeking to disciple you into being a certain kind of person. Your body, in some ways, this raging body that's like a a mashup of all kinds of conflicting emotions and thoughts and feelings, It's shaping you into a certain kind of person. That's what Paul's saying. Pay attention to those things because what they do is they give you a certain kind of confidence apart from God. So what you have to do is learn to kind of overcome those things that happen to you and to form a competency framework, a confidence framework to move out into the world because it's like, well, if nobody else is going to help me, if nobody else is going to fix this for me, I have to do it on my own. That's what Paul says. I learned to have confidence in myself. I learned to have a righteousness, a performance. I had standards, and I, and I sought to exceed those standards and become a kind of person that's confident in myself. That is a paradigm for formation that many of us are unaware of that's happening all the time. Even if you're a Christian, it's still happening to you right now. Our past shapes our present. Susan Bryson, who was a rape victim, abused and wrote, reflecting on the role of the past, she says, the past reaches toward the present and throttles desire before, before it can become directed towards the future. Miroslav Volf, who was uh, tortured, who was, uh, grew up in, in Yugoslavia, and he was tortured there and uh, went on to become a pastor and a theologian, reflecting on the, the power of the past, is when we remember the past, it is not only past. It breaks into the present and gains a new lease on life. So we got to learn to pay attention, to reflect on our story, 
and understand how these things are forming us and shaping us into being the kind of people who don't put our confidence in Jesus, who are not becoming like Jesus. We are becoming really essentially like the world. There's all these patterns that work in us to shape us into somebody else's vision for us, to shape us into having confidence in ourselves rather than in Jesus. It's disrupting those patterns, learning those patterns, understanding how patterns from our past, generational patterns, right, like biological patterns, all kinds of things are shaping us and forming us. And that's why it's dangerous. So let me give you just a myth right here of spiritual formation. Um, I heard these stories growing up, and it always freaked me out, of like the person who would say, man, I used to be like a pimp. You know, I used to be a drug dealer. I used to look at pornography, but now... I've become this miraculous, amazing, you know, Christian with like a cape and a Superman thing going, you know? Uh, it was like these miraculous deliverance stories. And while I'm not arguing that that can't happen or doesn't happen, and praise God when it does happen, but the normal, ordinary way that transformation happens is not, I used to, but then, and it's some instantaneous kind of magical process where the Holy Spirit sprinkles pixie dust on us and we all of a sudden like have our memories deleted and we don't desire these things anymore now all of a sudden we want this our lived reality often is more like romans chapter 7 verse 18 the apostle paul says i have the desire to do what's right but not the ability to carry it out if it's true that the magic happens and the, and the, the transformation happens instantaneously then why do you still have desires to do the wrong things why, no matter how hard you try, can you not beat that sin? Can you not beat that pattern? Can you not transcend some limitations? You have the desire to do what's right, and you tell people, I want to be this kind of person, and you mean it. And yet, you find that you're still a jerk. You find that even though you're a Christian, you're still impatient with your children, and you yell at them when you shouldn't, hypothetically speaking, right? Like, you, you do all of these things that you don't want to do, and that's what Paul says, our past still shapes our present. It's like a zombie that just won't go away, continues to like, you know, come up out of the dark and haunt us and attack us. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 would go on to say, to, to the, this degree, I pleaded with God to take it away. God, would you take away this weakness? Would you take away this vulnerability? Would you take away this thing from the past? And he said, God said no. But it's in my weakness, he says, that I learned to boast. And it's in my weakness that God becomes strong. It's in those very vulnerabilities where God wants to work. Because the goal, Paul says, is not perfection. It's dependence. It's dependence on God. God, you know my past. I, I want to see my past and be honest about where I've come from. I want to be honest about the things shaping me and keeping me from becoming like Jesus. Not just for the sake of becoming more aware. Okay, so this is the difference between, I would say, modern psychology and what Paul's laying out here. It's not just to become more aware so that you can love your inner child. It's to become more aware so that you can experience transformation, so that you can become like Jesus, right? It's not to become your authentic self. The goal is not self-expression. Jesus would say it like this. The goal is ultimately self-denial, right? Self-sacrifice. I know myself so that I can disrupt those patterns, and then I'm learning, second thing, not only to reflect on that and, and become more aware of that, but to forget that, right? To forget it. In other words, to not allow it to define me anymore. That's what Paul means by forgetting. It is not, um, it is not beating up on ourselves. It is not losing ourselves in the way that some Christians like to talk about it. It is having ourselves transformed 
not allowing that to define me anymore. And that's what Paul goes on to say. I reflect on the past. I understand where my confidence is so that I can forget that, so that I cannot allow that to define me. Whatever gain I had, he says, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then he says, the one thing I do, forget what lies behind. What does it mean to forget our past? To forget what lies behind? That powerful energy that seems to continue to pulsate through us, even in the present. Paul, I think at least two things. One, it means we repent of our past, right? We repent of our past, and we release our past. We repent of our past. That's what Paul's doing. He is repenting here. He's comparing his confidence in the flesh with now his newfound confidence that comes in Jesus. He says, Jesus has taken a hold of me. He's literally seized me. He is overwhelming my past. He is transforming me from the inside out. And he's saying those things that used to be a gain to me that I thought were advantage, my good looks, my IQ, my competencies, all of those things that from a worldly standpoint make me better than other people, he's saying I'm learning to change the ledger. I mean, this language is accounting language. So forgive me if you're not a financial person, CPAs, you'll love this. This is accounting language. He says all of these things that were a part of my confidence in the flesh are being transferred from asset to liability. All the things that make me really good in the world are those very things that make me weak and dependent when it comes to the kingdom of God. They're actually the very things that keep me from becoming what God has designed me to be. So I must repent of them. I must release them. The idea of repentance, which I know is a cuss word for some of us in the cultural moment in which we live. Um, He's saying those things literally, with vulgarity, he says they're excrement, they're dung, They're literally refuse, like sewage in the strong, I mean, this was a cuss word in Paul's day. They're becoming excrement compared to the surpassing surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Repentance is an internal shift in our perceived source of life. It is an internal shift in where we look to for confidence, what we glory in. Right? That's what repentance is. Now, here's the amazing thing about repentance in the Apostle Paul's framework. The Apostle Paul here is not repenting of anything bad. Like, all of these things he's repenting of would not be things we would classify as sin. I grew up as a Hebrew, right? This is not anti-Semitism that Paul's laying out. He was a Jew, right? Uh, I was a Pharisee, okay? That's not, wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing, right? These are all good things in Paul's day. So the amazing thing about repentance is Paul's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm repenting of the way that I use those things to get a sense of righteousness for myself. See, the sin for Paul was not in this list of things that he did in his past, these things that he did or were done to him. He's saying it's what I took and how I used those things to get righteousness for myself. That is the sin. It, it, it's, I was looking to those things to give me a sense of identity and purpose in the world. I was, I was trying to get righteousness out of them. That's the sin. It's how he responded to what happened to him in the past that he's repenting of. So Paul would not say to you, for instance, if you're a victim of abuse, you need to repent of that abuse. He's saying what you need to repent of is how you've used that abuse to protect yourself and to shut yourself down and to cut yourself off from trust and hope and vitality and the potential for new life. 
Because that's what happens when we get abused is we shut down. We settle. We numb. That becomes an identity. I'm, I'm a victim. And while that's true, Paul's saying that's not what's most true. And that's how we use those things that we've done and that others have done to us to get a sense of righteousness that Paul's saying those things must be forgotten if we're going to become like Jesus. Can't find my righteousness in that. Can't find my righteousness in the fact that I'm angry. Can't find my righteousness in the fact that I didn't get what I want. I can't find my righteousness in the fact that I grew up in church. I can't find my righteousness in the fact that I pray a lot or I read the Bible a lot or my dad was a deacon or my grandfather was a pastor. He says, who cares? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and being found in him and having his righteousness, it is dung, he says. It is a reorientation of his past, right? He is reorienting everything here and saying, even the best things in my life become excrement in comparison to knowing Jesus. That's what it means to forget. It starts with repentance. God, this is the way that I've used my story and the things that have happened to me and the things that I've done as a shield to try to protect my own little kingdom over here, my own little empire. God, I repent of that, he says. And then I release that to you. I release control. I no longer allow it to be a distraction. That's kind of the, the essence of for, uh, forgetting in the Old Testament, for instance. God forgets our sins. He remembers them no more. He literally holds them behind his back. Now, does that mean God can't access with his mind the eternal omniscient God can't access our past? No, he's saying, I choose not to hold it in the center of my frame of reference. I put it behind my back. I no longer consider it. I don't allow it to be the way that I define my people. That's what it means to forget. I release it release it. Now, this is not easy, right? To put off the old self, it's not easy. Paul Paul goes on to say, um, I want to become like him in his death. Not just like him and like, you know, oh, I like Jesus. He's a cool guy, okay? We got to get away from that. It's not like, I want to become like him because becoming like Jesus gives me certain benefits. No, he says, to become like Jesus is to die and to rise again, it's, it's, a, it's a cycle of being born again. It's, it's dying and then rising again. Jesus says, unless a, wheat, uh, a seed falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. It will feel like a death. This language of putting off is used of kind of putting it off and changing clothes. But I promise you, um, it's not like Mr. Rogers. You don't go into the closet Take off one coat, put on your cardigan. Oh, that's nice. Won't you be my neighbor? Okay, it's not easy like that. It's more like having a tattoo removed, right? Having a tattoo removed is a difficult process that requires multiple lasers to remove the various colors, multiple surgeries. It's costly, right? The average tattoo removal ranges from $400 and up, and it requires multiple treatments to remove the different colors and the sizes. It is a very complex, painful process that requires multiple visits to the surgeon. That is what it feels like to put off the old self, to put to death those patterns that are so deeply embedded in you. But it's possible with Jesus. 
That's the good news you need to hear in this passage. It is possible because Jesus relativizes the power of the past. That's what he's doing. He's redefining, relativizing the power of the past. He's saying, this is no longer your primary identity. These things that you found a sense of self or confidence in, they no longer define you. The time when you were born, the place where you were born, whether you're an American citizen or a refugee or an immigrant, that doesn't define you any longer. Your citizenship now, he says, is in heaven. The, the, the trauma that you've experienced no longer defines you. Your family patterns no longer define you. They qualify your story, but they don't define you. Your sexuality is not the sum total of who you are. Don't reduce yourself to the passions of your body, he's saying. Your race is not the thing that defines you. Now, it doesn't go away. God redeems you in your race. So we're not saying, let's be colorblind. Let's not, let's not acknowledge racial realities. What he's saying is, what's most true about you now is that Jesus is in you. You are a follower of Jesus, and then that's beginning to impact all these other areas. of life. It displaces all of these lesser identities and anchors our true identity in Jesus, which means now I don't have to perform. I don't have to posture. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to manage my image. I don't have to manipulate you so that I can get a sense of self from you, a sense of importance from you. I don't have to compete with you. I can collaborate with you because it's not about me getting something from you. It's about me receiving my righteousness apart from anything that I do. It's about me receiving the resume that Jesus has performed for me, and now his resume is becoming my resume. That's what it means to forget the past. We release the past. This isn't about blaming the past. This isn't about blaming our parents. This isn't about blaming an abuser this is about healing, right? Healing, deep healing. Miroslav Falls says it like this, much will be lost if the self simply discarded its past and abandoned it in favor of, air quotes, being in God. Our lived lives would then not matter at all. But being in God is not an alternative to living in time so that we would have to choose one or the other, being in God or being our human beings in this body with our stories. Rather, being in God frees our lives from the tyranny, the unalterable past exercises with the iron fist of time's irreversibility. God does not take away our past. God gives it back to us. Fragments gathered, stories reconfigured, selves truly redeemed, people forever reconciled. That is the hope of the kingdom of God breaking in. And so again, myth. Just read your Bible. Now, I'm all for Bible reading. But let's not forget that information is not transformation. If I just read the Bible, then things will be good. Okay, the Pharisees know more scripture than any of us in this room. And Jesus says, you're blind and you're damned. We need more than just classes and Bible teaching and, and Bible study, although those are all good things, they are not in and of themselves enough to change us. They can't even be our righteousness. We must have our whole person transformed, our whole story caught up in God's story, what he's doing, what he's promised to do, what he's done in the past, what he's going to do in the future, and what he wants to do right now in the and so let me just close with that encouragement to you. Paul says, the one thing I do, I forget what lies behind 
and I strain forward. This is like an athlete. I am sweating and straining. As God works in me, he says in chapter 2, I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I have my eyes fixed not, what's, not on what's behind me, but I'm looking straight ahead. And he says, I make it my goal. I'm an athlete and I have a goal, right? I have a, a competition that I am in. I am looking at the finish line. And that thing he's pressing on towards is the prize of the upward call, the heavenly call in Christ Jesus, which doesn't mean Paul's saying, I want to die just so I can go to heaven. He's saying, no, I want heaven to come to earth. <laughs> I, want, I want the call of God to break into my life and begin to define me. I'm putting off what's behind. I'm putting off this old self with all of its disordered loves and longings. And I am, because Christ has taken hold of me and made me his own, I want to, I want to know that in the core of my being. I want to be reconfigured and reoriented to that reality, for that reality, that calling to transform all of my callings and all of my story. Colossians 3 says it like this, don't lie to one another, is a practical example of how this works. Seeing that, don't just lie to each other, not lie to each other because it's a bad thing to do. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is a recovery of Genesis 1, the Imago Dei. God is renewing you, he is restoring you, into his image. He's given you a new story. His life, his death, his resurrection now becomes the narrative that frames your narrative, right? That is the most true story about you. That is your past. That is your present. That is your future, right? Paul's saying that new story, a new identity, right? Now we see a new paradigm. If we could show that uh, slide on the, 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 the Christ-centered paradigm. I'm in Christ now. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I have a new family. I'm no longer to just random experiences in social systems. God's placed me in a new system called the church, and he's using it to transform me. I have a renewed body, he goes on to talk about in this past, that's being transformed from a prison, he says, to something that liberates me, my mind, my heart, my soul, my body, being transformed. And then I step into new practices, and all of this begins to shape my, the center of my being. New identity, new calling. I'm living in the present with the resurrection power of the future. I am in Christ. You are in Christ. That is the most true reality. That is a paradigm shift. Becoming like Jesus means we must forget the past. We must not allow it to hinder us, as Paul says in Hebrews 12, from running the race that God has for us. We strain towards the future. So let me end where we began. What are you becoming? Who or what are you becoming? Are you becoming like your roommates? Are you becoming like mass media? They're trying to form you. Are you becoming like your favorite pundit? Are you becoming like your favorite candidate? Are you becoming like a particular ideology? Are you being formed into the image of the market? Who are you becoming like? Or are you becoming like Jesus? Can you say with Paul, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection. I want that to be the defining reality of my life that begins to redefine and reshape and reorient every aspect of our lives. God will settle for no less in all of us. He has a much higher vision than we do for our lives. And thank God he's committed to making it happen with all the resources of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news that our future 
is not held hostage by our past. Our past matters, but God, you've called us to move beyond our past, to see the significance of how it shapes us, but then to be reoriented to a new way of living, a new way of being in the world, fueled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you that you've made that available to us by faith. If we'll turn away from our sin, we'll repent of these ways that we try to find our righteousness, and we'll receive the righteousness that comes from you by faith that makes us perfectly acceptable, perfectly loved, fully known, without anything done on our part. God, may we rest in that truth today and allow that to truly sink into our bones, into our imaginations, to reshape our loves, our longings, our structures that are so deeply embedded in us. God, we know that you have the power to overcome and overwhelm because you are taking hold of us and you are transforming us. So God, help us to rest in that truth today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If that's your reality, we want to invite you to come and receive communion here. We have stations at the front, stations in the back. Communion is for those who are saying with Paul, I want to know Jesus. I want to be found in him. I want his resurrection to define my life, my past, present, and future. I'm surrendering it to him. I'm letting go. I'm turning away from an old way of life and turning to Jesus in faith and asking him to change me. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. We invite you to come and receive communion. We'll sing another song or two here, and then uh, we'll send you out. The way we do that here at Soma, we have stations in the front and the back. Come down, take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup, and then return to your seat. Um, For those of you who are not followers of Jesus, we just invite you to stay in your seat as others come. We're so glad that you're here. This is a meal to be shared by those who are apprentices of Jesus. I'm going to give you a moment to reflect, and we'll sing together, and then we'll be sent to meal.